KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. How critical race theory became a topic at school board meetings. Conservative activists started using um, that term critical race theory to refer to something completely different. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Today we bring you a Midday Edition special about the heated debate over what's being taught in history classes. It's a narrow conception of America to think that being American means silencing marginalized voices, histories, and stories. And why some school districts are banning lessons about race. There have been this this backlash against ethnic studies since these states started having to address the browning of their classrooms. That's coming up on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. Critical race theory and ethnic studies, two different efforts to right the wrongs of history. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. This is KPBS Midday Edition. It's Monday, September 6th. As schools are back in session, tensions continue to heat up at school board meetings over what's being called critical race theory. There are even bans that limit what can be taught in some classrooms across the country about the history of race and racism in America. That's the case, for example, in East County, where the Ramona School Board recently banned 10 concepts about race and the inception of this country. Instead, lessons will focus on American exceptionalism, which has been described as a myth by many scholars. Another popular myth, though, is that critical race theory is being taught in K-12 through classrooms. The term has been hijacked, rebranded, and weaponized as a political boogeyman. So today we will cut through myths with facts about what critical race theory is, why it's suddenly become so controversial, and what's actually being taught in schools. Starting us off is Kiara Bridges, a UC Berkeley law professor and the author of Critical Race Theory, a primer. Kiara, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. First, let's make this plain for people. What is critical race theory? (laughs) So up until Fox News discovered it (laughs) in uh, 2020, um, critical race theory, that term referred to a body of scholarship that um, legal scholars have produced starting in the 1970s and 1980s. um, Scholars, many of which um, who were of color, but, you know, many white scholars as well, law professors looked around them. Um, and wondered what happened, right? So we had the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s. It kind of culminated with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed shortly thereafter. And, you know, we thought we had overcome. Um, We thought we had moved to a a country, at least I had the laws that were on the book that would make the country a racially just one. 
but you know these these legal scholars looked around them in the 1970s and 80s and they saw a lot of the same thing in same thing in terms of racial segregation and housing, racial segregation and education and schools, um, racial disparities in health. And so critical at race theory, that term referred to a body of scholarship that interrogated the relationship between race and the law, looking at how, although we had arrived at an era of formal equality between the races, um, racial uh, um, inequality persisted. So that's what critical race theory has been. Um, and then in the, <laughs> in 2020, um, a, you know, a group of well-funded conservative activists started using um, that term critical race theory to refer to something completely different um, from the legal theory, the advanced legal theory that is taught in law schools. Hmm. And so where and to whom is critical race theory taught? So critical race theory is taught in law schools. Um, there actually in the past couple of years, many law schools have um, met with uh, demands by students to offer courses on critical race theory, mandatory courses on critical race theory, which just goes to show that critical race theory isn't um, part of the core curriculum. It's usually an elective, um, but it's always um, has been in, in law schools. I teach critical race theory. I taught it at Boston University when I worked there. I taught it at Harvard Law School. I taught it at Yale Law School. I teach it at UC Berkeley School of Law. To, to say that critical race theory is being taught in K through 12 schools, which is what conservative activists have, have been claiming is to um, deny what critical race theory is um, and is to use that term in a way that is inconsistent with what the authors of the term um, mean when they say critical race theory and what critical race theory has always meant, again, up until fairly recently. So critical race theory isn't being taught in elementary schools. What is it that lawmakers and parents, some parents, are trying to prevent from being taught in schools then? So when um, legislators purport to ban critical race theory in schools or when parents go to their school boards and demand that their teenagers not be exposed to critical race theory, they're not talking about, you know, the theory that I described in some degree of detail in my primer that came out in 2018. They're talking about something completely different. We're talking about something that the right has um, told them exists. And so what the, the way the right is using critical race theory is really just to refer to any thought about race that they don't like, any discussion of racism, um, any discussion of our history that is embarrassing, um, that is tragic, um, that we should disavow. All of all of that um, is is being referenced by the term critical race theory. And so the way that I understand it, the right would like for us to only talk about race in schools in a way that is self-congratulatory, in a way that proclaims that we have triumphed over our horrid racial past, that we fixed the problem in 1950, 1960, we fixed it. Um, and that any racial inequality that exists today is just a result of non-white people not doing what they're supposed to do. So what do you make of where this country is and the resistance to learning about American history? I understand this particular sort of historical moment that we're living through in terms of banning thought, you know, banning uh, children's expo exposure to ideas. 
Um, I understand it as a direct outgrowth of the racial reckoning that the country began to have um, last summer after George Floyd was killed in the most public and brutal of ways. Um, and so after Floyd's murder, um, you know, we witnessed the, these, you know, historical movements um, for racial justice, you know, movements against police violence, movements um, encouraging us to rethink um, the penal system, our criminal legal system that we have um, in this country. And, you know, people took notice, you know, it wasn't just the folks who had always been aware that, you know, racial injustice exists in the U.S. and it takes myriad forms and, you know, one of which is police violence. But folks who, you know, had been re relatively sheltered, right? The folks who um, live in places where when they call the police, the police show up and solve the problem, you know, as opposed to causing more problems. Um, those folks, the protest made sense to them. They, it wasn't, it didn't seem like, you know, radical screaming, of, you know, about a myth uh, that doesn't exist. Rather, it seemed like reasonable people who wanted to live in safety um, and, and comfort um, and to trust the institutions um, that were designed, uh, you know, at least in, in theory to protect them. Those folks um, sort of had an awakening. And so this backlash against uh, critical race theory or these bans that purport to ban, you know, quote unquote, critical race theory is exactly that there is a backlash against the racial reckoning that we began to have. And it's designed to move those people who began to pay attention um, after Floyd's murder. It's designed to move those people back to where they were. As you've said, critical race theory has been reframed as this erroneous issue. Let's dig a little bit more into the origins of it being politicized a bit more. So from what I understand, um, in September 2020, um, a conservative activist named Christopher Rufo appeared on Tucker Carlson's uh, program, widely watched program on Fox News. Um, and, you know, he, he told the viewers that he was was just astonished by the fact that critical race theory, something he was calling critical race theory, was being taught in executive agencies and these, you know, diversity and inclusion trainings. Um, and he said these, these trainings were telling white people that they were inherently racist. Um, they were telling non-white people that they were owed something on account of their race. And he was, again, horrified. And he you know, avowed, <laughs> made, a, made a vow to ensure that critical race theory was purged from executive agencies, that it wasn't going to be taught to employees of executive agencies. Apparently, someone in the Trump administration was listening, they were watching, and they contacted Rufo shortly thereafter to draft um, an executive order purporting to ban the teaching of critical race theory in executive agencies. And, and notice the date, right? September 2020. So this happened after a long, hot summer, right? People were in the streets all summer long after George Floyd was killed. And we know how Trump responded to those protests. He aligned himself um, with, with the police. Um, he aligned himself with a position that says the police can do no wrong. They're heroes without capes. Um, this is a position that, you know, ignores the claims um, of non-white people in, in poor communities predominantly who 
understandably to be far from heroes without capes. And so Trump aligned himself with white people and against non-white people. Um, and so his, his administration's attention to Rufo and his taking up of this claim that critical race theory was being taught in executive agencies is just consistent with um, this effort to align himself with white people and to position the Trump administration and Trump himself as a defender of white interests. And you kind of answered this question in your response there, but why do you think the effort to politicize critical race theory or what's essentially ethnic studies has Mm -hmm. been so successful? So I think we ought to not underestimate the power of Fox News. Um, it has an incredible, incredibly wide viewership. Um, and I believe Brookings Institute um, posted a study that says that in the last six months, um, Fox News has mentioned critical race theory like tens of thousands of times. Um, so they've been telling a uh, uh, portion of the population that a threat exists that doesn't exist, right? It's, and that's what's riling these parents up um, and having them march down to their, their school boards to demand, you know, that their kids receive the education that they want them to receive. So part of this interest, the polit- politicization of this, this sort of field of study is, an, is a result of, you know, the media. Um, but it's intentional in the sense that you know, this is a well-funded effort. The fact that so many of these bills um, have been introduced, so many of them have passed, um, suggests that this is a well-funded effort. <laughs> My theory is that um, this is part of an effort to make sure that base stays riled up, um, make sure that base that voted in, you know, Trump, who said that he that America was was under siege was being threatened by by all sorts of forces, many of them non-white, <laughs> Mexicans at the border, Muslims who, you know, with this Islam that hates America, the Kong flu and the Chinese virus. See, this is a part of an effort to ensure that that base still sees America as under threat by non-white uh, forces. And that base turns out in 2022, in 2024 afterwards, um, to vote in a government that would protect this America from being lost. So how do you think we should go about combating this misinformation? So I spent a a good portion of the summer (laughs) talking to folks, um, trying to get them to understand that critical race theory was not being taught in K-12 schools. And I realized um, that that probably was not um, a good use of my time, um, in part because, you know, I am one of, you know, a couple of other voices who are trying to defend the boundaries of the term um, and the forces that have so worked so hard to, as Christopher Rufo himself said in his own tweet, to decodify and recodify the term critical race theory, those forces are appear to be much more powerful and much um, better funded than myself. But I also, I think that we're missing the issue a little bit by um, arguing and trying to convince people that this advanced legal theory is not being taught in K through 12 schools. What this comes down to is whether we want kids to be exposed to the full scope of American history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, 
right? Do we want kids to know about the Chinese Exclusion Act, for example, that we passed a law in this country that prevented Chinese people, people from China, from, from coming over for no other reason. It was economic, but also it was based on racial animus, right? Do we want our children to learn about, you know, native boarding schools where we took native children from their parents um, and put them in white homes with the intent being to assimilate these native kids so that they would not identify um, with the cultures of their parents. Like, do we, do we want our kids to, to, to know what this country historically has been? And I think that if we, if we get beyond this stupid fight about whether you know, critical race theory is being taught in K through 12 schools and we move to a more nuanced discussion of what do we want our kids to learn and why and how and when, I think that we'll have much better outcomes. My, my instinct is that most people will think that it's preposterous to propose that children shouldn't learn American history, that they should only learn some parts of American history, um, the parts that reflect well on the country. I think that um, in order to make actual good patriots, citizens um, who care for this country and want to see it succeed, they have to know the errors of this country historically and, you know, you know, contemporary errors. And so to ban thought inside of K through 12 education um, is a recipe for, for disaster when it comes to the continued um, greatness of this country and, and the legacy um, that this country will have. I've been speaking with Kiara Bridges, a UC Berkeley law professor and the author of Critical Race Theory, a primer. Professor Bridges, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. We continue our exploration into the controversy over critical race theory and ethnic studies. As you heard at the beginning of the show, critical race theory is not the same as ethnic studies. Critical race theory is a legal framework studied in law school. California adopted its first statewide ethnic studies curriculum for high schools this year. San Diego Unified has approved a plan to include ethnic studies and anti-racism education in classrooms, and Poway Unified will also be teaching ethnic studies this school year. But how should it be taught? And does it threaten to create a wedge between students of different races, as some critics suggest? Joining me to explain how ethnic studies can be integrated into classroom teaching and how it affects students is Michael Dominguez, a San Diego State University professor of Chicano and Chicana Studies. And welcome, Professor Dominguez. Thank you very much for having me. What's your definition of ethnic studies? Ethnic studies is the the focus study of race and power in the United States, particularly from the perspective of historically marginalized people. Should ethnic studies then be its own class, or do you see it brought in in a schoolroom as an aspect of many classes, like in history and reading and social studies, and how would that work? 
I'm a little bit of two minds there. Uh, ethnic studies is its own thing. There's a lot of expertise there um, that is that is really focused in on ethnic studies. We we have some concepts and ideas that are really particular to our field, um, and we do work interdisciplinary. So we work with literature, with history, with sociology, all sort of at the same time. Um, so in that sense, I'd love to see ethnic studies as its own class. However, in schools, we we realize that we we do have those sort of four subjects that everyone's seen in their high school, English, math, history, and science, right? And so in that sense, it is possible to, to bring ethnic studies in across all of those subjects. And it can work, right? And it can be really effective and really powerful. At the same time, it's important to sort of make sure that, that we don't just sort of say, oh, we've, we've infused sort of the voices of folks of color and that's ethnic studies because that's not quite what it is. So ideally, what I'd like to see is, is a dedicated interdisciplinary ethnic studies class, but also the possibility for infusing it across subjects is, is there so long as we respect the expertise and the importance of those big concepts that, that come with our field. Can you give us an idea of the types of incorrect information about ethnicity and race and history that have been a standard part of school curriculums. The biggest unfortunate misconception is, is actually our very definition of race. We're trained and, and sort of led and, and led to believe because that's popular received knowledge, race is down to our skin color. And one of the other problems then is that leads to a misunderstanding of what racism is. Because racism as we see it in the modern day, though there are of course instances of, of really severe and overt racism still, racism isn't just individual prejudice. It isn't just that overt act of, of sort of hatred. Racism is stuff that's been sort of woven into the fabric of our community and culture and our institutions for years. Many of the history tropes that we have learned that have come down to us from the schoolroom traditionally about Christopher Columbus and perhaps the Civil War being about states' rights instead of slavery. These things that many, many students have learned over the years, are they now out of history books? How can the truth actually be taught to students? I think it's important to note that and understand that all of those things that we think of, so for instance, you mentioned, right, the Civil War and states' rights. Well, of course that's a thing, but it's a partial story, right? It's only a partial story because the other part of that story was the states' rights question was, a state's rights to own human people in chattel slavery. Um, we only get half the story. And then we're told that that's the full story. And what's happening is not any sort of erasure, but rather a more full depiction of our reality and our history. People you know, in this, in this present moment are, are talking about the idea of cancel culture and hindsight bias as, as if these things are, are problems. What is history but trying to learn about our past to understand where we might go in the future. And without being able to understand the fullness and complexity of our history, we lose the possibility for that. And around that very fact, right, this idea that looking back at sort of, you know, events now and saying like, oh, that was morally wrong, like that there's some sort of problem to that is somewhat misguided because of course, other perspectives at the time knew that was wrong at the time, right? Indigenous Americans knew that colonization was wrong. Black Americans knew at the time that chattel slavery was wrong, right? When the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, folks who became Mexican Americans and Chicanos knew that this was a bad deal. So 
understanding the fullness of those histories and the way that that history has then impacted and shaped the lives of a lot of individuals. It's shaped the course of our communities, um, shaped the ways our communities look, how we interact with one another, how we see each other, our beliefs about one another, understanding those. If we don't understand the full picture of these histories, right, then we miss the possibility of being able to imagine better futures. And what is schooling? What is academics? What is the study of history? But to learn about our past in order to imagine brighter, better futures. And then it requires that we engage meaningfully with the full truth of our history. And if we just try to look at only the good parts um, and we don't look at often the things that are a little darker and scarier, but that are also the perspectives of the most marginalized among us, then we end up in a situation where we're not in a position to make better choices. There's criticism that introducing ethnic studies into the classroom will drive students farther apart. What's your take on that? I think that's an unfortunate and narrow understanding of ethnic studies um, and of, again, race and racism. Uh, the idea that talking about race is something that will divide us is a centuries-old trope. Um, and it's unfortunately a tool that if we don't talk about the things that matter to us and our experiences and the way they impact us and the ways that the decisions and actions of other folks and the um, impact us, then we end up in a situation again where we can't and won't move towards better realities um, and better futures. It ties into an unfortunate taboo we have about talking about race. We're encouraged from really from childhood to, to not talk about race, to not mention skin color. But what that really does is it just stops us talking about something that ends up being one of the most salient realities and experiences that we all live with every day. Every single one of us, right, experiences the reality of race and being able to talk about it and being able to understand how to talk about it, how to understand it, how to understand what it really is, its consequences, and how we can from different cultural, racial, and all sorts of perspectives, have sort of intersubjective dialogue and discussion and learn from each other and understand each other's sort of very particular experiences in the world and the way those are, you know, impacted in all sorts of ways that allows us to better understand each other. So rather than dividing, what good ethnic studies instruction does is actually provides us with a toolkit to have conversations that we've been putting off for, for far, far too long. And how do you answer critics of ethnic studies who say it teaches children to hate America? That, I think, is, is just unfortunate and really factually untrue. Uh, you know, I think one of the words that gets keyed in on a lot is the idea of critical, that we're engaged in criticism. And that's what all study does, right? Um, any sort of, you know, sort of learning is actually criticism in the sense that we're examining something to understand it. But I think the, the things that we do in ethnic studies echo what James Baldwin um, once said. James Baldwin was a, a famous Black American author who, who said, right, it, it's because I love America so much that I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. We want the best for America. Um, Chicano and Latino and, uh, you know, have, have been accused of being, right, like not American or being Mexican, yet, yet my family can trace its sort of origins to South Texas and, and the you know, within the borders of the U.S. since, you know, the, the 1500s. Um, I care deeply about America. Ethnic studies cares deeply about America, but wants the best for it. And 
one of the important things for us to look forward to the future is to be able to talk about those things that are most uncomfortable, that are most challenging. Ethnic studies gives us those tools. And it's a narrow conception of America to think that talking about those things that are uncomfortable for us is somehow bad. And it's an unfortunate conception of what is and isn't American um, to think that it is un-American to dissent. And it's unfortunate to think that being American means silencing marginalized voices, histories, and stories. Now, the ideal of America used to be a melting pot where people of all races, ethnic heritage, found common ground in an American identity. Is there still some benefit to that image? I don't know that that was ever reality for folks of color. The idea of the melting pot worked for folks of European origin and ancestry who were able to eventually sort of have their traditions looped in to this very narrow, what's become a very narrow image of, of what American is. And so the idea of a melting pot and the idea that, that we lose these salient parts of our identity was never really a reality. That doesn't mean that I don't believe in or that ethnic studies isn't committed to um, intersect subjective, mutually loving community, right? It is deeply, but it, it's an idea of America that recognizes our differences and, and loves one another for that, that and appreciates. Um, it's not so much, you know, a melting pot as a mosaic. As, as Toni Morrison once said, the U.S. American means white, everyone else has to hyphenate. And for too long, like that, that's been the idea of the melting pot, that the melting pot means a very you, like, particular white cultural position. And that if you want to be part of American, you have to give all that up or you end up hyphenated. And what we should rather be doing is, is teasing that apart and appreciating the, the huge diversity that we have and all the strength and insight and really richness that that can give us when we pay attention to it, when we pay attention to our different identities, and when we appreciate the way that social power has worked across history and, and we might imagine it to work better so that it does not marginalize and it includes and brings the richness of, of all of our perspectives um, into, into that idea of what American can be. How are teachers coping with the controversy surrounding critical race theory and ethnic studies? I think we're unfortunately putting teachers in a really uncomfortable and difficult position. And they're just doing their best to, to help students talk about and make sense of race and racial difference and, and now are under attack for any efforts to do that. And it's a, it's a sad state of affairs in which that question of like, you know, coming at a, an elementary school, a middle school, a high school teacher saying like, are you doing critical race theory? And, and using that essentially as a way to censor and silence them from trying to engage our students and our youth in, in the most important conversations of this era and moment um, is, is a deeply unfortunate thing. So I think that, um, we need to give our give our teachers grace as as some of them learn more about this, and we need to trust that our educators know what they're doing because they do in terms of helping our students talk about race, learn how to talk about race, and and that's that's what teachers do is is they help us grow and they help us learn, and they can do that around these these again incredibly pertinent questions of race um, and racial identity that have come to the fore here in 2020 and 2021. 
I've been speaking with Michael Dominguez, San Diego State University Professor of Chicano and Chicana Studies. Professor Dominguez, thank you so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. You just heard about the differences between CRT and ethnic studies. Now we take a closer look at what's really being taught in school classrooms, why, and how that helped shape our society. I spoke with Professor Sarah Clark Kaplan, former Associate Professor of Ethnic Studies and Critical Gender Studies at UC San Diego, and now Executive Director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. Here's that interview. So, you know, much of what's said uh, about CRT in right-wing circles conflates the legal framework with ethnic studies. Can you explain the difference Absolutely. And I, you know, I want to actually also expand on your point. I think often much of what is said on the left to defend critical race theory often conflates ethnic studies and critical race theory, the legal framework. And I think the easiest way to approach this is to really go beyond this sort of truism on the right that critical race theory is teaching people to hate America or sowing racial division or destroying American history and the truism on the left that critical race theory isn't anything new. It's just the truth of American history. And the reality is neither of those are really the case. Critical race theory, while it draws very heavily from the same movements of the 60s and 70s that birthed ethnic studies as a field of study, at the same time, critical race theory also draws very deeply on its academic roots in legal theory. It's a body of scholarship that emerged in the 70s by a series of very learned legal scholars of color, people like Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado, Cheryl Harris, many of whom also, in fact, are based in the same sort of East Coast and California institutions that ethnic studies and African-American studies frameworks came out of. But the difference is this. Ethnic studies truly is about rethinking the history, the sociology, the literary studies, all of the different ways that we learn in schools today through a framework in which we understand that race, power, and difference are crucial to how the world works. So you can teach ethnic studies from a perspective of literature. You can teach ethnic studies from a perspective of art. You could teach ethnic studies from a perspective of history. And in fact, history is crucial. On the other hand, critical race theory is a much more specific academic movement and body of knowledge. What it does is it looks into legal and political ideals, policies, and structures, things we've taken for granted forever. Things like the Constitution itself, the Bill of Rights, the notion of property, the meaning of equality, the meaning of discrimination. And it redefines those terms by understanding that rather than them being value neutral, they've always existed within a framework of race and racism and white supremacy. 
You know, you mentioned ethnic studies. It first began in the late 60s, growing out of the civil rights movement. How has ethnic studies evolved from those years earlier? That's a great question. You know, as somebody who considers myself a second generation ethnic studies scholar, I was trained by many of those activists come professors, those people who started marching in the streets as part of the Third World Liberation Front at Berkeley or at San Francisco State or at UCLA. And those, you know, or at San Diego as part of the Lumumba Zapata movement. And those people, the Angela Davises, the Ronald Takakis, really understood ethnic studies as a connection between the community and the classroom, where the kind of knowledge that communities had to offer of the histories of people of color in the United States could be brought into the classroom. And where the kind of knowledge that was produced in the classroom by scholars and by students would have a direct positive impact on the communities of color from which we came. And while I think that is still central to what ethnic studies is today, ethnic studies has moved beyond a community studies model, where it also now includes a broader framework of thinking about everything from community-based movements to even the most kind of esoteric aspects of philosophy, for example, from an understanding that there is no version of history, of philosophy, of literature that does not center an understanding of race as part of the way that we make sense of our world and the part of the way that people's life chances and opportunities are shaped. But I think what's really remained the same about ethnic studies from its birth in 1969 to today is that ethnic studies has never pretended that there is such a thing as some kind of purely objective form of learning. We understand that politics, like the Supreme Court has long told us, never stop at the schoolhouse gate. And that, in fact, we have not just the right, but the responsibility to think about creating social justice through what we do in our classrooms and in our research. We're seeing this broad sweeping legislation uh, to ban CRT, which in this legislation typically includes ethnic studies throughout classrooms uh, in America. Why do you think there's so much opposition to this kind of education? Trying to ban ethnic studies in classrooms, particularly in California, particularly in Texas, particularly in Arizona and Nevada, some of these same states where we're seeing this move against critical race theory, it's nothing new. There have been this fight back, this backlash against ethnic studies since these states started having to address the browning of their classrooms in terms of what they taught, where students and parents wanted a history and a sociology of social studies and an English taught in the schools that reflected the experiences and realities of the majority of the students. But what we saw was that that backlash did not meet a huge amount of success. That in fact, despite all of the claims that ethnic studies sowed racial division and created hatred, most people, when they were actually exposed to a history that wasn't just about old white men who we like to pretend didn't really own slaves or didn't really kill Native Americans or didn't really do any of the things that they did, that when they had a chance to learn a richer and more complex and more robust history of this country, that they appreciated it. And so that real intense push against ethnic studies, in fact, really failed in many ways. And we saw it in the California legislature. We saw it in other states. 
And so this is, I think, where the move to sort of raise up critical race theory came out. The reality is most people don't know what critical race theory is. And why should they? It's an advanced field of academic knowledge production that mostly exists among legal scholars and researchers in the academy. The idea of banning critical race theory in an elementary school is laughable because honestly, no one is teaching critical race theory in elementary school. They're teaching ethnic studies. But since no one knows what critical race theory is, the right has been able to claim that it's whatever kind of boogeyman they want it to be. And they've managed to really restart that same war against ethnic studies without having to acknowledge that it's a war they've already primarily lost. But on the more sort of larger and I think more troubling level, I think the question really is, why is the right so opposed to ethnic studies? And I think, unfortunately, the answer is that much of the continued belief in things like the idea that those of us who have money and opportunities and resources in this country have it because we earned it or we deserved it or we somehow got it rather than because of a complex combination of hard work and luck and privilege and power and structures that really benefited us, that people don't want to necessarily learn that the resources that they have, that the benefits that they have are not necessarily based simply in their own merit, but in long-term racial structures of inequality. I think that it's the backlash against ethnic studies or against learning about race and power is very much the backlash against everything that decenters whiteness and wealth and particular forms of you know white male dominance in American society in favor of not other people instead, but a broader, more inclusive and just understanding of who deserves access to power and opportunity in the U.S. Bad in mind, how do you think ethnic studies helps to shape a student's education? Well, obviously, I have a particular opinion as somebody who has been teaching ethnic studies for 20 years. One of my favorite classes to teach is the very first introduction to ethnic studies class uh, that I used to teach at UC San Diego. And what I love about it is about 50% of that 400 student class are students who are taking it, not because they really are interested in ethnic studies or because they have a driving, burning desire to learn about power and difference and equality, but because they need to fill a general education requirement. But what I see over the course of the quarter is not simply that they learn history that they never knew and one that helps things that used to not make sense to them make sense to them. Things where they said, well, it always seemed contradictory that we said X but did Y, and they all of a sudden can really understand that. But even more importantly, that they then begin to develop critical thinking skills where they begin to question some of the phrases that we all use. Things like, well, everybody has a chance to do why, or, well, everyone knows this, or this is how it's always been. And that, I think, is the most powerful thing, is that students learn that they have the right to be able to go back and think about things, not simply from the dominant perspective that they learn from their teacher or their textbook or even their parents, but to be able to listen to those who are sometimes silenced, those who are at the margins, 
those whose voices are often not called upon, the person who cleans your house, the person who's held in a detention center, the indigenous elder whose land your university occupies, and that there's a wisdom that can be gained from those people as well, and that you can then synthesize as a student your own perspective, and in the case of ethnic studies, you can then act on it to change the world. Mm. So when you examine how history has been taught, are you able then to draw direct lines to how easily susceptible some people are to misinformation and the political discord that's caused uh, in this country today? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think I have a I have a four and a half year old. And one of the things that I am most struck by is how we are all, especially when we're young and really throughout our lives, we all love a fairy tale. We love an easy story with good guys and bad guys and somebody who's a hero and somebody who's a villain and an ending that makes sense where the good guy wins and the bad guy vanishes. And for many years, that was the version of American history that all of us were taught, whether it was George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, whether it was, you know, the saving the settlers from, you know, scary Indians, or whether it was Thomas Jefferson, who was so opposed to slavery, or any of these sort of stories, we learned a very fairy tale version of history that allowed us to believe that America is the complicated and amazing nation it is because we've done everything right. And it's hard to give up that easy and really lovely vision in favor of one that requires us to say, Thomas Jefferson said he was against slavery and he owned 603 slaves till the day he died. You know, the westward expansion of the U.S. was very much at the expense and the genocide of peoples whose land was taken and who to this day continue to fight for their land claims to be recognized. Does that mean that everyone who is, you know, a settler or a descendant of settlers in the United States, a descendant of former slaveholders in Virginia, that we're all evil people? No, it's not about substituting one villain for another. It's about recognizing that history is messy, that we all are complicit or culpable for as many injustices as we are justices. And that that's hard to live with. It's hard because you have to then decide where do you stand and what do you want to do about it? And I think for many people who are already struggling, particularly people who may be part of, you know, a kind of white rural working class community that's already felt, I think not so much economically disenfranchised, but socially and culturally decentered, the sense of having to give up even more of their sense of deserving where they are is a very hard pill to swallow and one that people fight against. I've been speaking with Professor Sarah Clark Kaplan, Executive Director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. Professor Kaplan, thank you so much for your insight. Thank you so much, Jade. It's a pleasure to speak with you. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program. Shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.